Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski. As always, we frame this podcast around living your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Today's guest is going to blow your mind. Peter Crone is somebody I recently heard on a podcast, and I was just absolutely blown away, and I had to have him on our podcast. We spent days reaching out to Peter's team, weeks getting him on here, and ultimately now he's here to share his incredible wisdom on how we can all learn to access and unlock our subconscious and unconscious programming, the programming that ultimately runs our life, that runs our reality. Your beliefs, your identity create your reality. So if you're someone who's looking to express the greatness that is within inside of you right this minute, this podcast is for you. You're going to love Peter and his explanation of how we ultimately all can unwind all these belief systems. Peter is known as the mind architect. He's working with everyone from A-list celebrities to pro athletes to the most influential people in the world. I feel incredibly honored to welcome Peter to the podcast. You guys are going to love this podcast. Listen all the way to the end because there's so much incredible wisdom. Today's podcast is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, a longtime sponsor of the podcast. You know, Bubs has been with us for almost five years now. And the reason they stay with us and the reason we stay with them is because we believe in the product and the listeners of this podcast support them religiously. Bubs is known for having the best collagen, the best MCT. And ultimately, now they're adding a new complete range of products that you guys are going to love, just ultimately to help us access high-level products. The other thing I love about Bubs is that they're doing it with integrity. They're giving back with 10% of profits going to charity, specifically supporting the namesake of the company, Bubs Charity, which is giving back to um, military veterans and their families, which I absolutely love, support people who have given their lives or given a lot of their lives for the country and freedom. So thank you to bubsnaturals.com. You guys can access 25% off, which is more than ever. Normally it's 20. They're going to give you 25% off for this month only at muscleintelligence.com slash bubsnaturals. Muscleintelligence.com slash Bubs, B-U-B-S, Naturals with an S. Ladies and gents, do not neglect this amazing opportunity. Bubs has the highest quality collagen that exists, that if you're someone who's concerned about improving the complexion of your skin, the collagen elasticity, your fingers, fingernails, your hair, your skin, all of these amazing things, your joints, your blood sugar regulation, these are all the benefits of some collagen every day. Usually for myself, it's on the order of 30 to 40 grams. It's been suggested about 5 to 10% of your total protein intake should be coming from collagen to balance out the ratios of amino acids. And that's what I do with myself and all of my one-to-one clients. So ladies and gents, without further ado from me, please enjoy this podcast with Peter Crow. Looking yeah. forward to diving into the concept of mind architect. So if you wanted to start there and define what that means. Sure. Um, it was sort of the, you know, they say necessity is the the, the mother of uh, invention, right? So it's kind of, I've been called many things like a spiritual teacher, a hitman for the ego was pretty fun, a happiness guru. And uh, I was really just looking at it through the lens of like, physics of what am I actually doing? And so obviously my work is predominantly located between the ears and what we call the, 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 the arena of the mind, which I distinguish from the brain, which of course is much more what someone like Andrew would speak about. Yeah. Um, and then I, the architecture was something that I was always passionate about when I was young. I loved to draw, but it was very, uh, I was less the sort of free flowing painter and I was much more the specific sort of sharp pencil detail-oriented artist. And so I had this sort of natural proclivity towards that precision that we could call architecture. And I had sort of, I found it to be unique. You know, I was like, well, I'm sort of doing tenant improvements for somebody's skull, right? Like making it so much more efficient in there. So Mind Architect was born and uh, seems to have worked so far and stuck and people like it. And it, it begs curiosity you know it's not like if people walk up to me and they're like oh you're a spiritual teacher and then there's this preconceived idea that i walk around in robes burning sage and covering people in coconut oil you know which which i do at the weekends but only on the weekend. <laughs> so mind architect was it was novel and it, it 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 inspired curiosity so then it would open up a dialogue so 
Yeah. So take me back out. to take me back to when you started to kind of unravel this concept of the unconscious being our our guiding light, right? So maybe our compass. And mm -hmm. so obviously, there's a lot of people who are um, studying the influences of the unconscious on our everyday activities. And obviously, you've taken such an incredible leap from what it seems like everyone else is doing with the information, right? There's a lot of people out there studying it. There's a lot of people out there trying to articulate it. What I hear from you is putting the pieces together. So I'd like to kind of have you put the pieces together for us on mm -hmm. how that started. Well, thank you. I, I do, you know, it's always humbling to hear, especially from peers like yourself who see the difference that I make. I, I feel my work is very unique. There's a lot of great teachers out there who say the right things, but they, it's a little bit like window dressing. You know, it's like you've got this storefront and the mannequin has got old clothes on and they do a good job of putting new clothes on, but the back of the store is burning and it's, or it's full of mold, you know, and it's like, so for me, it's like, you, you've got to get down to those deep seated primal patterns of what I distinguish more as subconscious. And again, it's subtle, unconscious to me is a whole different conversation, but subconscious is these are these patterns that we developed during our childhood and these formative years where we're kind of like tape recorders, like as kids, they just, we absorb stuff, we mimic things incredibly quickly. And so this is why kids are also very impressionable and can be very gullible. And certainly in this day and age, unfortunately, with a lot of the nonsense that's going on in the world right now, kids are, you know, being preyed upon, I, I feel sadly intentionally. But that aside, you know, those, those patterns become subconscious uh, programs that for the most part drive our lives and they become the constraints and the the, the paradigms in which we function. So our beliefs and our conscious thoughts are housed within these deeper subconscious constraints. So somebody might know that they wanna be in shape, for example, right? And they might listen to you and go, wow, this guy's got such great inspirational information or they listen to whoever, or they might have a, a library full of books and DVDs about fitness. So they consciously know that they wanna be in shape and they know what they should do, but they still have a tendency to go to the fridge, which is now filled with stuff that they consciously bought, but it's like sugary snacks, it's it's refined stuff, it's and they know that they shouldn't have it, or they smoke, or they drink alcohol, and they know they shouldn't do that, and it it's not in keeping with their their intentions, their goals, but it's because of these deep subconscious patterns where their feeling of inadequacy, insecurity, and scarcity is still actually. The, the sort of the 95% of all of their thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that create their results. So that's what I undo. I've delineated the 10 primal patterns that I assert every human being's got. We, we sort of lean into two or three, like that define us more than the others. As we mature and we grow, sometimes we just naturally transcend some of them just because of a, our own adversities that we overcome. People get therapy, they get good friends who help them through stuff. Um, but yeah, that, that's why I feel my work is so, you know, I differentiate myself is to really reverse engineer someone's anxiety, depression, addiction, relationship problem, sickness, whatever it is they have and take it back to what are the fundamental programmed roots of your subconscious that gave rise to the identity of who you think you are that is the precursor to all your thoughts, feelings, actions, and now the outcome that you have. Great. So the reason I took such an interest in what you do is I coach people all around the world and I find the physical tactics are one aspect and obviously the mental aspect is, is a completely different ball of wax. And if we don't address the psychological limitations and as you say, these subconscious patterns, people yeah. simply don't change. We can yeah. write the best workouts and best diet plans in the world and people simply will always revert back to those unconscious subconscious patterns. So I'd yeah. love to have you maybe walk down the path of how we start to discover our subconscious patterning. I know we see some, some self-sabotage, some self-limiting beliefs, um, but how do we discover what those are for us? It's a great question and why I'm writing my book so that people can discover all of them, right? So when I use the term reverse engineer, that really is the access point. So first of all, the gift of life is that it's really a cosmic mirror. So the first place to start to investigate what are your subconscious patterns is where do I get upset? Where do I get triggered? Where do I have these consistent woes in my life, right? Is it the mother-in-law? Is it my boss? Is it, is it something to do with one particular body part? And whatever that trigger is, we then want to look at, okay, beyond the fact that you think somebody is the cause of your upset, which is a big illusion, right? Like, oh, I'm upset because of what so-and-so did. That's 
That's that's a complete pretense. Right. Somebody did something or said something, you got upset based on your conditioning. So that's the first access point. It's like, okay, I got upset or I'm frustrated or I feel some sense of just malaise or suffering. What what is that actually revealing at a deeper level? So the question I would ask people is like, what's the primal fear? What's the fundamental fear? Because we only get triggered when the, the mind is perceiving a potential threat. And so happy people, so to speak, or someone who's complete with, within themselves, comfortable in their own skin, is less likely to, I'm not saying they don't, but less likely to get triggered by pretty much anything. So, mm-hmm. okay, well, that's not ideal that somebody left me in a relationship. It's not great that my boss has clearly got some sort of big ego and wants to control people, but but I don't feel threatened by that. It's more a point of observation. So wherever anyone who's listening right now is stuck in life, then they can go back to, well, what is that revealing at a deeper level about who I say I am? And it's always a negation. What that means is it's always, I'm not something, right? So I delineate between the I am and the I am not. Right. The I am is a powerful statement. The I am is a negation against our limitless, our boundless, our infinite nature, which is what I assert. Right? That, may sound, that may sound poetic or esoteric, but from my perspective, our true innate self, call it soul, spirit, consciousness, it's boundless. So when, as, as soon as our mind says, I'm not something, let's take a very typical example, which is I'm not enough. Right. Every, everyone can relate to that. They may have a vi- a various iterations of it. Right. I'm not good enough. I'm not young enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not thin enough, I'm not wealthy enough, whatever it is, but that whole domain of not enoughness is in direct conflict with what I would assert is your innate abundance. So if your true nature is enoughness and beyond, as soon as you say I'm not something, well now you've created resistance and that resistance is suffering. And how it will manifest is you might attract a partner who doesn't recognize you or you get a job that doesn't pay you what you think you're worth. And so that's, that's the cascade is to be able to take the external, which is really a mirror for the energetic uh, sort of signature that we have as an identity at a deeper level, which is a negation of our true extraordinary nature. So wherever we don't feel abundant, wherever we don't feel full of like worth, then there's something we're saying at a subconscious level that is a negation of that, which will manifest in the symptoms of what we cool our life so it, it's slippery but hopefully that helps <laughs> that, that makes a ton of sense and and you're I've, I've heard many people try to explain the uh interactions of the subconscious and conscious and that's a really great articulation and ultimately how they interact and i think one of the the key things that i'd like to start to understand is what was the catalyst for you was it a, was it a personal experience where you were struggling in life because i know you've gone from being an extremely successful trainer and coach to now being someone who, you know, the highest uh, paid celebrities and athletes are, and, and executives are coming to to change their minds. So I'm curious where that shift came for you, because sometimes in that story, there's uh, some gold. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate it. I'm always happy to share. Um, I, I went through a bunch of things. I'd, I'd say the most pivotal moment was, uh, for me, relationships, romantic relationships, I think for everybody, are one of the greatest conduits to awakening, right? So you know, with the nod of the head there, it sounds like you've, you've learned some stuff yourself. Exactly what you're talking about. Man. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, I consider myself to truly be a lover, not a fighter. You know, even as an athlete growing up, I went to one of the most um, revered universities in England for athletes as well as academia, like it's top five college in the whole of the UK, but it's re- renowned for pumping out incredible athletes. So I was in that realm and, you know, it's a bit of a stereotype, but you associate men competing athletes, a couple of cocktails at the end of the day, and there's going to be a brawl or two, you know, it's just, that's what guys do. And so my point is, that even in that environment, I was never, never pushed by anyone. I never pushed a guy in a bar, I've never hit anyone. So my point is, you know, I consider myself to be a hopeless romantic and a lover and somebody who comes from a lot of space of care and compassion. So for me, finding love in a partnership was the greatest way for me to discover my deepest fears and concerns. So the most pivotal one, as I was saying, is I met someone actually when I was in Australia, I was training some VIPs whilst they were making movies down there. I met this beautiful girl and was so stereotypically Hollywood where it was across the crowded room and 
you know, there was this sudden, just absolutely distinctive moment of connection. I didn't know who she was. She didn't know who I was. But then there's a whole series of events that led to us connecting a few days later. And we sort of, it sealed our fate. We both expressed that we felt the same thing. And then we started this beautiful relationship. And then about a year and a half later, she'd moved to LA with me. And uh, then she left me. And I just fell apart, you know, sort of figuratively. It really sent me into this tailspin of couldn't sleep and I had lost weight and I was calling all my friends of like, how do I get it back? And there was these incessant questions that kept bouncing around my head of, you know, where is she? Has she met somebody else? Will I ever meet her again? Or will I ever meet anyone like that again? And it was just creating so much angst, you know? And about two months into that process, seven or eight weeks, I hadn't spoken to her for about six weeks. We, we chatted for a little bit after she left for a couple of weeks. And you can imagine I was hoping to hear her say she's coming back or whatever, but none of that. <laughs> so, which was really life's gift to me, which I sat there. I remember sitting distinctly at this like 200 square foot room in a rent control apartment, just at my desk. And I suddenly realized the answer to all of my questions. Um, excuse me, I'll turn that off. Um, so all of those questions of like, where is she? Has she met someone else? Will I meet her again? Will I meet anyone like the same answer was true for all of them. And it was three words, which is, I don't know. And it may seem overly simple, but for that reason, it was immensely powerful because I realized at that moment that I truly didn't know. I didn't know where she was. I didn't know if she's dating someone else. I didn't know if I'd see her again. I didn't know if I'd have love like that again. But for the, the difference was for the first time in my life, I was totally at peace with it. I didn't need to know. I really hit complete profound acceptance. And I felt a freedom cascade through my body that I'd never had before. I didn't even know it was possible. And that was, you know, the absolute turning point, pivot point in my life where I suddenly became a completely different human being. I was no longer driven by fear or survival. What it really brought to the surface was the deep seated fear of loss because my parents had died when I was very young. And so that was part of my conditioning as a child. At seven, my mom died of cancer. You know, it's like, how does a seven-year-old process that? At 17, my dad went to work one day. I was the only child, so it's the two of us. And he never comes back because he's in a major shipping disaster where hundreds of people die. So no one's going to begrudge Peter Crone the fact that he has this deep-seated fear of loss, certainly of anything of perceived value. You know, there's nothing more valuable than your own folks, especially at that age. And so the next thing of real and sort of significant value that showed up for me was this girl, you know, I'd had, I'd had girlfriends and I'd had good opportunities and you make some money. And these are things that we put value on, but this is where I had the most amount of value, which of course I needed as the catalyst to be able to get to those deep seated fears, because if I didn't perceive her as that special to me, I wouldn't have had so much concern about losing her, which all the while we were together was this subtext of our relationship. I was the perfect boyfriend, much of which was a, an adaptation to the fear that I didn't want her to go anywhere, <laughs> which of course life set me up for success by taking her away so that I could actually finally reconcile and mitigate that deep-seated fear, which is where the freedom came in. And it transformed my whole relationship around loss. I never lost my parents at all. My parents died, you know, and, and that's just part of life. And it, it got rid of the narrative of loss. I realized I've never lost anything. I can never lose anything. I'm complete in myself. And so that started my whole business as, you know, uh, a mind architect and, and helping people discover freedom from their own constraints and their own suffering. I love it. I always say the only objective thing your parents ever gave you was life. Everything else was subject to your interpretation of your yeah. kids. And I can say the exact same thing to both of them, and they both perceive it and interpret it completely differently. Children are, have been my greatest teachers. It's been truly a gift to be able yeah. to see how it's not just the words you say, but the meaning that they take. And yeah. so, you know, for everyone out there, just acknowledging that, that that everything in your past is simply a reflection of your perception of the events, not the events themselves. I think yeah. that knowledge creates an empowering thought to realize like, oh, if it, it's my perception, not the event itself, I'm now empowered to change it. Yeah, it's all interpretation. You know, you've got the events of life. It's like with my more advanced uh, clients who I've worked with with some time, I, you know, having listened to my work, you know, I like to inject a lot of humor. I can be a bit of a smart ass at times and, you know, but it comes from love. And so with people that I feel that I have the privilege or the space to be able to be a little bit, you know, cocky with like, they'll call me and 
they go on about something for 15 minutes of this happened and then, oh my gosh. And you know, they're a little bit distraught uh, because of what they've been through or someone did something or something happened in their business. And at the end of it, when they're done, and I, I, I assert that I'm like one of the most powerful listeners. So I take it all in. I could probably verbatim pretty much repeat back to them what they said. But my response is always like, okay, I just want to make sure I got everything that you said. Like, you know, I'm a good listener. You've worked with me for a while now. And I just want to make sure that I fully understand everything you've been through. So you're telling me there's some stuff happened. Did, did I get it? <laughs> you know, and they're like, you're such a dick. You know, it's like, of course, again, this, I wouldn't do this with my first client, but they know that really they're just telling a story and their little child has been triggered, you know, by whatever events. Events have happened. And I'm not saying that I would condone the behavior of whoever did what, or I'm not saying it was easy to experience. But when you really understand the manifest world versus the unmanifest, and I'm speaking from the unmanifest, which is boundless, then it's just stuff that's happening. Again, it doesn't mean that it's ideal and it doesn't mean it's comfortable. And it certainly doesn't mean that subjectively it's something that you personally want, but it's still what happened. So the degree to which you're not okay with that is the degree to which you suffer. That's just basic physics. Right. And so once you start to really unpack that and go, holy shit. Yeah. Okay. It's not ideal that Peter Crone, I don't know, like, let's think of one event in my life. Like I lost a lot of money on the stock market, like over a decade. You know, it's like, I did not want that to happen, but it happened. And so I can either have the event happen and be upset or just the event happen, <laughs> right? Yep. So that's freedom to me or profound Dr. acceptance at least. Dr. Rick Hansen, who wrote the book, The Buddha's Brain, it's an amazing book, I suggest it calls it the second dart because uh -huh. the event itself is something you can't change, but your response to it is yeah. within your realm of control. And you know that's why ultimately we probably both advocate meditation, uh, as being the, the opportunity to create a gap, right? To create a gap between stimulus and response. Yeah. And just even there, because I know you do such great work, you know, you, you, there's a, the second dot as a component of something you can control, right? Now that's how it occurs. But I take it a level deeper, which is where compassion comes in. You can only control it to the degree to which you understand your conditioning. Right. And that's that's subtle, but really important because people will point to someone and say, well, that's stupid. They shouldn't do that, whether it be they cut them off in traffic or they reach for the donut when they're trying to lose weight or they're drinking or they're smoking. a cigarette. Whatever it is that people do that someone else would judge them. Unless you've gotten to the deep seated subconscious patterns that drive those behaviors that can be perceived as non-beneficial then there's, there's just no room for judgment, you know, and this is where it comes in with a lot more compassion and people berate the hell out of themselves for doing things that they don't, they know they shouldn't, but they still don't know why. And that's where I really just invite people to have a little more patience and, and kindness with themselves and others is that unless you really can unpack and undo the subconscious patterns that are driving your behaviors, then you, you don't have control. It's really, there's no choice. Choice is a complete illusion. You know, people are being driven by these automated habits. And so until you get responsibility, then, you know, I just invite people to just be a little softer. Like one of my quotes, I say, you can't be held accountable for that which you're oblivious to. And, and if people just got that, it really opens up a whole new world of being sensitive and being kind and patient and compassionate with people, knowing that everyone's got their own cross that they're carrying. And certainly these patterns, which are so insidious and so deep, and especially the older we get, they're, they're way more convincing than, um, you know, humans are truly doing the best they can, even though on the surface, it looks like it's pretty abhorrent what they're doing. I love that. And that's so true, right? We walk around, uh, you know, passing people day to day, and they're completely unaware of their actions, their responses, their behaviors. So we, we start placing judgment on them. We start getting angry and then it triggers us, right? Mm -hmm. not, ultimately, we're the only ones that suffer because they're not even aware of it. So exactly. True. Yeah. So, so, so you said 10 things are the primary focus of your book. And I don't want you to re reveal them all. Yeah. You could pick one or two key ones that are like the primary triggers for people. For sure. I, I like to talk about not enoughness because I think who ma no matter who it is, everyone's had their version. You know, obviously some of your perhaps more mature listeners, you know, maybe they've been through stuff. They got over their feeling of having to impress people or be a people pleaser or whatever it is. But these would be the behavioral adaptations, right? These are compensation patterns from a deep seated feeling of not enoughness. Then 
ironically, we can go into one of two directions. It, usually, we either try to mitigate and disprove the, the view of ourselves that is deleterious, or we go right into it. Right. So either way, you look at, say, a homeless person who has become a drug addict and basically lost everything is now on the streets or a guy or a woman who's in the corner office with a, a nice, you know, shiny gold like name tag on the front of their desk and they drive a Mercedes and life is good. It looks so drastically different on the surface, but I would assert from the perspective of the subconscious narratives they're both being driven by the same potential conversation. One bought into it, I'm not enough, no one gives a shit about me. And so it was an easy pathway to taking substances as a, as a way of mitigating the suffering of abandonment and finding relief through, to begin with, maybe cigarettes, alcohol, then marijuana, and then it you know, got heavier and heavier until such time that the costs literally and figuratively became so big that that person ends up on the streets they are being driven by the same narrative as the person who's in the corner office who perhaps felt not, not, not enough because their dad was perhaps sort of the quintessential high school coach type who, even though the person got a B, it should have been an A and what happened here? Or I can remember one of my MLB guys who, you know, guys getting paid millions of dollars because he's exquisitely talented and he could go four for five in a game which is extraordinary, you know, to be batting 800 in a game and he'd still kind of have a frown on his face. And it's like, well, why is that? And he's like, well, you know, and eventually got down to the fact that his dad, when he went four for five in, you know, little league or whatever as a junior, his dad, what happened to the fifth at bat, right? So that's his programming of like, even though that's extraordinary, the way it was interpreted and contextualized for him was that he still made a mistake. So the person in the corner office can still be driven by the not enoughness, but the way that they compensated for it was to make sure that they do everything they can not to display it. The homeless person is in it. The person who's got this sort of fabulous superficial life with material success is doing everything they can to transcend it and overcome it. Either way, until you realize that the truth, which is my work, is to take it down to that core conversation of I'm not enough and see it for what it is, which is a conversation. It's not a truth for either of them. The homeless guy might literally been raised by a single parent who had a meth addiction and the dad was in prison. And so their not enoughness manifested as trying to find a sense of belonging in a gang, which then led to the whole world of whatever drugs and crime versus the other one who's not enough, saw that their older sibling was a greater athlete or more accomplished in academia and they got a lot more attention. So they, they felt that their insufficiencies was the catalyst for them, like kind of a screw you to the dad of like, I'll prove to you that I can do well. Either way, neither of them are free. So for them to be able to go back to, and this is again, like my work with anyone is to go back to those moments and go, okay, you to your point that you made earlier there's the event and then there's the interpretation so okay you saw that your brother your sister got the accolade got the bigger gift for their birthday because they did well you interpreted that as you're not enough is that is that an absolute truth that that meant that you're not enough because they got more gifts no it means they got more gifts <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're not enough so at the moment that somebody sees that that revelation is so liberating it doesn't mean that that person still can't enjoy a corner office and a fancy car and a big home. Great, have at it. But you no longer need it as a means of trying to find external value to compensate for the lack of internal value. And equally, the person on the street, okay, maybe you didn't have a, a semblance of like stability, love and security in the home where you were reassured and you were acknowledged. You don't know the language of appreciation because you never received it. But it doesn't mean that beneath the surface of that dialogue, that who you are isn't inherently valuable. You just haven't found it. So being able to reflect that to people is just so, so gratifying and fulfilling. And when, when those lights go on, it, it's so beautiful to witness somebody come out of the prison of their own dialogue that they've invariably had for three, four, five decades. So that's one example. I hope that that's that wonderful. Makes sense. So I'm sure you've experienced some high achievers who use their uh, not enoughness, to use your term, or their inadequacy to drive performance. So, so like you said, this this person is driving the Mercedes to have the high end job. Mm -hmm. That's they they know that's driving their performance. What do you do with people who don't want to let go of that because they think it may be their edge? 
personally, yeah. I do with, like yourself, do with a lot of pro athletes, a lot of high achievers who don't want to let that go, that uh, what they say is their edge or the chip on their shoulder. Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and and when it's all you've known, it does seem to be the only access to success, right? And this is the trouble. Like when I'm when I'm literally guiding somebody to this awakening moment and when they see it, when they're like, holy shit, for 40, 30, 50, 60, whatever, you're, you know, it's, it's invariably a long time before someone finds me. When they see that they've lived in that prison for all that time, it's scary to step out of it. Do you, do you remember the, the movie Shawshank Redemption? Yep. Powerful movie, right? And the, I forgot the character's name, but just this adorable old man who feeds Red. the crow, right? What was his name? Well, was it uh, not, so not uh, Morgan Freeman was Red. The other yeah. guy was, um, I forget. Um, I can't remember. But, I remember. But they were the three main characters, right? There was nope. obviously Tim Robbins uh, and then Morgan Freeman and then this older gentleman. Yep. And he'd been in prison for like, I don't know what it was, but his term was something like seven, 60 years, right? And he comes out and now he's like late 70s or whatever it is. And so I feel like it was such a beautiful cinematography kind of example of this the comfort of our discomfort where the quintessential comfort zone, even though a comfort zone to me is completely discomforting. If people really understand that meaning it's a familiarity, but just because something's familiar doesn't mean that it's actually good for you. Right. So here we see this, this old man who comes out of prison, which, you know, should in theory be this euphoric event. Right. And he gets a job packing bags, right. He's packing bags, by the way, Brooks, that's it. Brooks. Thank you packing bags at the grocery store, right? And, and he's so conditioned that he puts his hand up like, you know, sir, can I go to the bathroom? And, you know, the manager of the groceries is like, dude, you go, you go to the bathroom whenever you want. You don't need to ask for permission. So there's a reflection of that conditioned habit, right? But he doesn't know what to do with his life, right? Because he's so accustomed to being within the confines of that structure of the, that's all he's known. And so, albeit a sad reflection, you start to see the power of conditioning. And, you know, I don't want to get into the politics, but I think that, that's exactly what's been going on over the last two years, yep. is there's some very sinister people who know how to appeal to these primal patterns of fear, then take away a sense of belonging, uh, which is, you know, stay at home and all the separation and the sort of social distance, and then take away a sense of worth and you can't have your job, you're not essential. And before you know it, people are desperate, right? So they'll do whatever they're told. But the same in life where for my athletes, like it is scary when you step out of those confines because it's unfamiliar. So that moment that I show someone, the first experience they always have is of a lightness in their body. I always see their respiratory rate change immediately. I can see their breathing. I say, that was a nice breath. They're like, oof. Oh, I can't, I can't remember the last time I had such a big inhale or exhale, right? There's a tension that is released. The tension being a reflection of the world of survival that they've been in. Like the context we live in as human beings is fundamentally one of survival. And if you're in a state of survival, then you have to carry some degree of tension and you're looking out for potential threats. Once that is completely reconciled and you step into this world of complete freedom, it's like, wow, I didn't even know that existed. Similar to what I went through, like, you know, to your question of like, what was my personal event? So, but at that moment, what we've relied on as mechanisms or resources for success start to become moots, right? It, it, it doesn't apply anymore. I can't make my dad wrong to become successful for the athlete, you know, or I can't use my nemesis in my sport as my excuse to want to stick it to him, you know. Now, we still can, and actually it becomes exponentially more powerful, but when you come from a place of love and freedom versus fear and survival, it is so more powerful. It's just they're not, it's not a language that they're so well-versed in yet. So there can be initially some hesitation, you know, where they're so accustomed to success because of the screw you attitude or I'll prove you wrong mindset. But once they tap into the depth of true abundance on the other side of survival, then they never look back. It's funny because I'm taking a look at this from the other side, right? You're looking at it from the psychological side. I'm looking at it from the physiological side and kind of the mind-body interface. So when I'm trying to change somebody's mind, the first yeah. thing I'm going to do is change their physiological state, right? So like you said, you change their, their mental framing and their mind let go or their body let go. 
I'm yeah. going the other way. I'm going to say, let's, let's see if we can take your body out of this and let your body come into this relaxed physiological state and then yeah. learn to change the emotion within that. And I think yeah. it's interesting to see how the same ultimate result can be achieved in both ways, because ultimately the, the you know, the inextricable nature of the mind and body is, you know, just part of our reality, right? Yeah. So that they, they can't be separated. And I think it's important for our audience to understand that is like, if you're yeah. experiencing a psychological trauma or a mental state, that's something outside of what you want to experience. There's multiple ways to approach it, but you can change it. Yeah. No, and I love the fact that you understand that. You know, it's like the mind-body connection to me, they're actually synonymous. You know, they're just different levels of density. They're inextricably one sort of continuum, right? So the subtle being the mind, the narratives, but then the emotions sort of being the bridge to something that we call a feeling, which is really now the chemistry that goes on that we feel in the body, right? But they they are an inextric, uh, inextricably connected continuum. So yes, when we make, it's why someone who they go and watch uh, Sunset, right? Like Huberman probably spoke to you about that. I forget the details on the podcast, but when you have this panoramic vision versus when we're looking at a phone, you know, and this like sort of laser-like concentration, mm-hmm. we go into parasympathetic versus sympathetic, which is why most people are, in a constant, you know, mild to severe state of sort of fight or flight, yeah. <laughs> excuse me, just simply because of the way they're actually using their visual systems. So that could be a physiological response to an environment where, oh, I'm looking at something that is so vast, that is so open, which actually to me speaks to the fact that they're, they don't have any attention on a potential threat because everything is so revealed, right? If yeah. I'm looking at my phone only, then my brain is like, okay, you're really focused on something, which means I don't know what the hell's going on in my periphery. Right. So well, I'm like going to be hunting, right? If you're yes. hunting, you're seeing everything, and you see that you see the animals like boom, focus and go, right? So yeah. when you do that, you know your your eyes are going to the the visual system is going to change, the breath is going to change, the muscle tone is going to change, the heart rate is going to change, right? Yeah. It's the entire physiological response to that narrowing of the visual field. And it's an instantaneous cascade, right? What most people don't know is that they're constantly in that state just by virtue of looking at a device. So we become so locked into something. So our physiology now becomes a norm, right? So if you do it consistently over time, then it's no longer something that stands out as an, as an abnormality. It becomes your actual state ongoingly. So people feel relief as a byproduct of letting go of what became normal. what I want people to understand is no being relieved and being in a state of calm and attentiveness. Like I'm very alert, but I'm very calm and relaxed. That should be the quote unquote norm more in a parasympathetic parasympathetic state. Mm -hmm. So, but unfortunately over time, something becomes so conditioned and it becomes so well practiced that it's a habit that it also becomes normalized. Uh, I can remember working for this VIP couple who are making films and they're they're basically the head of their company. You know, she sort of created this beast by virtue of the fact that she was so uh, accommodating. And so she did everything for this couple to the point of her own demise. But as you know, when we're in a real state of survival and pure fight or flight, then we're running on, you know, the norepinephrine, the, the adrenalines, the cortisols to keep us going. So the first time she had a break when I started working with them was about three months into the job. And I would always get my day off a week or whatever. And I, you know, so how much training can people do, right? As you know, like I'd see them for a couple of hours and then the rest of the day was my own. So, but she was there constantly. And I, I distinctly remember seeing this pattern at play in real life, which is at the end of the three months, everybody knew she was exhausted and depleted. But she kept going until she had a break of a weekend. And that weekend, she was so incredibly sick, right? So at the moment that she was able to actually come out of that state of uh, fight or flight, her body could do the necessary repair that it had been trying to do for as long as she was just continually, you know, working and working and working 24-7. So understanding how the mind and the body do flow between one another, to me, is pivotal if you're going to have any sense of vitality, health, or wellness, and certainly a long you know, hopefully radiant life. And I love that you're helping people understand how you can come from out to in, and I'm doing it more from in to out. And this is by no means a superior thing, but I think you would probably assert, I've seen people have beautiful physical practices of meditation, pranayama to understand breathing. They may do all the health optimization stuff of cold therapies, 
But if you don't deal with the subconscious, then it's still going to be transitory. You know, 100%. it helps, but you you got to undo these deep-seated narratives that create the internal suffering as far as I'm concerned. So I 100% agree. And I think the reason I, I approach it that way is because my audience is receptive to that, right? My audience yeah. is in the physical realm. We want to get in shape. So it's like an access point. It's like, hey, you're already doing this. And mm -hmm. I think the gap is not just, and this is kind of the, the premise on which I base my business. This is not just about what you do. It's how you do it. So it's yeah. not just the, the event itself. It's the intention behind it. So you can sit down, um, you know, and this is actually leading into the next question. You can sit down into a meditation, into a journaling, uh, you know, event and how you frame it in your mind completely changes the end result. And so the reason that leads into the next question, that one of the things that I'd be most interested in hearing from you, Peter, is it sounds like you're an incredibly self-reflective person, self-aware person. I'd be curious what your daily routine is, if you're willing to share, or maybe sure. like, a, like a regular routine that you share, to allow yourself yeah. to be kind of reflective on, one, to, be, to have a level of awareness like you do, and two, yeah. and how do you reflect? Um, I, first of all, I appreciate the compliment. And uh, yes, I do. I spend a lot of time alone, uh, which a lot of people sadly don't like to do because there is this feeling of deep seated abandonment. Most kids don't get loved and held to the degree that the kid really warrants or wants. Right. So I would assert every human being going back to your question, asking me about my 10 primary constraints. You know, another one would be that sort of feeling of abandonment, like where we don't feel fully seen, fully loved, fully held. So when people have that, have a mild, then they tend to crave connection, which is which is a primal pattern, right? As human beings, we're pack animals. We want a sense of belonging. Like this is Maslow's hierarchy. Like, you know, people understand that. Like we're social creatures. And so I would at first invite people to really learn to be comfortable just being alone. And I make a very subtle distinction, which is there's a difference between being alone and being lonely. I spend a lot of time alone and I'm never lonely. Conversely, a lot of people could be in a marriage. They could have a family. They're like they're never alone, but they feel lonely <laughs> because they don't have a degree of full self-expression or intimacy in the way that they communicate with people. So they don't feel heard. They don't feel seen. Everybody's running around like chicken with their heads run off. So no one's actually paying attention to the point that like a kid who keeps tugging on his mom's skirt or his dad's trouser leg. And it's like, daddy, 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 mommy, mommy, mommy. Like they, they don't feel seen. They're not, you know, the, yeah, in a minute, in a minute, I'll get you in a minute. Like, and that becomes sadly someone's experience of relationship. So that would be one of the first things I would say is just ironically, you know, we, we could argue, you know, unfortunately, just by virtue of the fact that I was orphaned, you know, I, I learned to be alone uh, at a very young age. And uh, now I absolutely love it. Um, I spend most Christmases by myself. I spend my birthdays by myself and people are like, oh, God, that's so sad. And it really isn't. I, I find it such a beautiful Same time much. to reflect. It's so quiet, you know, like. Uh, and again, don't get me wrong. I love company. I have amazing tribe of friends and intimate people and I love companionship and, you know, but, but I am incredibly comfortable and feel immensely intimate with myself in my own company. So that's one way to find, you know, these sort of hidden patterns in the dark recesses of our mind is you, you've got to at least sit quietly with yourself and not be distracted by this external continual noise and drama and gossip and conversation with people. So that's one thing. Uh, with regards to the question about my routine, I, I really do have, you know, a lot of routines in different arenas. I feel that we have to check the box of every aspect of a human being uh, as we are these complex organisms. So for example, this morning, you know, here I am talking to you at 10 o'clock and I was in my gym. Fortunately, I have a space that I turned into a gym at like about 7.30. I do my workout, then I have an infrared sauna. Uh, so I do a lot of hot cold therapies, uh, the hermesis, you know, to create this sort of conscious stress response. Uh, then I jump in the pool, I do a bunch of laps, then I get in my cold plunge, I have a cold shower. So that's really part of my morning routine is the, the movement aspect. Um, uh, I love that. First thing, I'm a very much a morning person. I get up very early, usually, you know, around five. Um, 
So that's part of my routine. And then as it relates to sort of the reflective stuff, I'm writing my book. So that's a form of journaling. It's not traditional journaling. It's not like I'm talking about whatever I'm going through, um, but, but it is still a cathartic process at some level. Um, and I'm also blessed because I get to have incredible conversations with amazing people like you and, and do podcasts and my clients, you know, where uh, oftentimes people say, who do you talk to? Like you change people's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people's lives around the world. Like, who do you go to? And I'm like, well, I'll be honest. It may sound a little bit self-serving, but I, I talk to you guys. <laughs> so every time I'm sure, you know, as you teach people, you reinforce your own education, you confirm your own knowledge, you get different insights. I, I love the fact that I, I work with such a, a vast array of people. I mean, I, for the, Three years now, I started working with show jumpers, you know, in horses and, and with horses. And I'd never ridden a horse. I mean, I've been on a horse, maybe on a trek in Hawaii on a vacation or something stupid like that. But these these people are competing in the Olympics and right. world, world equestrian games. And yet by virtue of having this client and I have to make these analogies that she can or he they can relate to by virtue of their chosen craft, I uh, it gives birth to new insights that I can then share with other people. So I'm always being very creative by virtue of the fact that I'm working with different people from different walks of life. And so that's a form of self-education and evolution for me. So, um, so I don't know if that gives you enough about my that's routine. Perfect. I mean, do you have any, do you have any strange habits that you've taken on writing a book? So I hear some people when they, when they write their own book, they don't consume anyone else's information. They literally turn off their phone. They don't read any books. So you have other people who are reading things for inspiration. Some people paint, some people hike, some people just lock themselves away. Any strange habits or patterns you've created for yourself? Uh, I mean, the strangest habit I seem to have is not writing. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that's not quite true. I'm writing all the time, but it's like, I, that's one arena that I'm working on is becoming a little bit more focused because I'm so blessed to be pulled left, right and center by so many, you know, amazing people that I get the opportunity to work with. It's very difficult to say no. Plus, I don't like to say no when people are suffering. I love that I get to help people. So if anything, my strange habit is, you know, uh, perhaps the inefficient, the allocation of time. Um, so I'm actually literally in the in the throes of shifting that right now where I did actually stop working with a couple of pretty awesome people which was tough uh, uh who were paying me a premium which is also tough to say no to so that i can rededicate myself so so that would be the strange thing is that i've been a little bit uh slow in getting real momentum with it but now that's picking up so when can we expect the book i had hoped by i'd say end of spring summer next year you know i'd like to get it done my end by the end of this year and then i know the publishing process is is quite a, a while so yeah, yeah i'm sure you've talked to our friend dr huberman about one publishing the book and two focus right he's he's the man when it comes to understanding how that actually i, I wish i could the guy doesn't even return my messages anymore <laughs> i'd love to chat i love his work he's a, he's a, it's such a extraordinary man with such great intelligence but you know we used to trade dms and texts and i haven't heard from him for a while so um maybe well, if i think like this, yourself to get back to me i think like yourself he's deep in the throes of writing books and, and yeah. podcasts and grants and all the yeah all the no, stuff he, that comes with being grown exponentially i mean it's impressive and and well deserved for the he's so generous with the information that he gives you know and i feel I do a good job. I've done, this is probably like podcast 65. I don't know. I've done a ton. Like, like there's literally hundreds of hours of free content where I drop all sorts of insights. So, but he, he really goes into such depth about like truly awe inspiring information, you know? So I, I, I'm just so happy that he's, he's developed such a great following. So, but you know, if he does hear this, Andrew, will you please respond to my texts? <laughs> I'll lean on him a little bit, man. I'll lean oh, on please. Him. Thank you. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much for your time. I am absolutely a fan. I'd love to consume your stuff. I'll definitely be buying your book for myself and my family and friends when it comes out. Thank you very much for joining us. Would you like to send the audience anywhere specific to connect with you? Uh, well, firstly, thank you for your gracious uh, hospitality, uh, hospitality and uh, having me on. And uh, it's really a pleasure that we got to connect. As I said, I've, I've, I've been familiar with your work ever since you spoke to Andrew, which I think now is a couple of years ago. Yep. Um, so I love what you do. And it's always great to connect with amazing people making a difference. So thank you for having me thank on. Um, 
the best place to find me is my website is petercrone.com or Instagram is petercroneofficial. And there's just a ton of content uh, that is, again, for free. And then on my website, I do have different courses uh, that are available and speak to specific subjects like anxiety, depression, health, relationships. So if any of those resonate with people, they can help themselves. I've been through some of them and I'll say I give my full approval. They're fantastic, incredible, uh, valuable gifts to us and keep doing what you're doing, Peter. We truly appreciate it. Thanks, bud. That's a wrap, ladies and gents. Thank you very much for joining me on the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. We do our best to search the world, to bring people who are doing it differently, who have something of tremendous value to offer. And I hope you enjoy doing this, listening to this podcast as much as I enjoy doing it. Uh, interviewing these people it truly just feels like an absolute gift to be able to extract their wisdom, pass it along to you, and ultimately help you live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. We all deserve to love our body. We all deserve to express the greatness that is within us. Sometimes we just don't know the process yet. And this is what we are doing here with the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. We're unwinding the process, whether that be mental challenges, whether that be physical challenges, whether it be emotional challenges, relational challenges, spiritual challenges, all of those areas of focus um, are important aspects to the whole being, to a complete being. I have some amazing podcasts coming up in weeks to come that are absolutely going to blow your mind. And uh, some of them are with respect to the body, other, other ones are not. But it's always going to have to tie into these areas of human optimization, as I just mentioned. So ladies and gents, if you're enjoying this podcast, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on YouTube, all the amazing places where this podcast is, is published and broadcast. Don't forget to leave us a review. Your subscription, your reviews drive this podcast. The further we can push this podcast up the rankings, the better the guests we can get for you. So guys, thank you very much. We want to continue to bring you the best information in the world. I appreciate you being a listener of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I appreciate all the amazing messages I get on Instagram, on uh, Facebook. Thank you guys for joining me. If you want to join the Muscle Intelligence community and access all of these discounts and access my programs and my coaching, you can head over to Facebook right now, facebook.com slash groups slash muscle intelligence. I believe is what it is. Just look for the muscle intelligence group, jump in there and my team will welcome you and help you answer your questions. Ladies and gents, thank you for being here. I am truly grateful and honored to be able to bring this amazing information to you. And thank you to Peter Crone again for being a guest. Live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.